The Arizona legislature is in full swing again. As the pandemic rages after two full years and politicians at the state capitol are gearing up to fight for bills they want to pass, the 2022 session is underway and marked by several notable highlights. This year welcomes a high number of new legislators as well, and it is Governor Doug Ducey's last year in office. At least in the governor's office. There are lots of questions circling the Copper Dome down at the state capitol, but one in particular is loitering in the wings. Can Arizona lawmakers come together to make real movement on key issues this year, or will they get bogged down in the same old political fights? Welcome to The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on Arizona's political news. I'm your host, Ron Hansen, a national politics reporter for the Republic. And I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, also a national politics reporter. Today, we're breaking down what the Arizona legislative session could look like and a bunch of the big bills on the table. We're joined today by two of the Republic's legislative reporters, Ray Stern, who covers state politics, and Mary Jo Pitzel, the state government reporter. Welcome, both. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start, Ray, with an overview of the main players that we should be watching this session. Well, I'd say that one of the people that that we should be watching is Kelly Townsend. She is a, a senator who's been in the legislature since 2013, and now she's the chair of the government committee in the in the Senate. And that's a powerful committee where a lot of bills are, you know, either live or die. And it's where we'll see a lot of these election integrity bills, which Kelly is uh, personally interested in. And so she'll get to review all of those, and she'll have an eye towards what Republicans and, and especially people that are that are part of the Stop the Steal movement are interested in terms of election integrity. Others say that these things aren't needed, but Senator Townsend will be possibly interested in approving some of these ideas. In contrast is Paul Boyer. He's a senator who has basically been criticized by people, including Donald Trump, as well as some of his peers in the legislature for pushing back against the audit and and being critical of the Stop the Steal movement. And so he's actually vowed to push back against anything that seems radical or, or really motivated by uh, sort of the Trumpism and the, and the conspiracy theories. So I think that'll be really interesting to watch. The legislature also has a lot of new members. There's people that are that are interesting on the on the right and the left there. We've got uh, Teresa Martinez, for example, and she is a staffer for Paul Gosar, who's definitely one of the sort of furthest right people and the leader of the Stop the Steal movement. So it'll be interesting to see what Teresa does. And uh, sort of in the same vein is another uh, Republican representative, and that's uh, Lupe Diaz. He's a pastor from Bisbee. And everyone's kind of wondering, well, he's a pastor, you know, is, is he, uh, how right wing is he, you know, and, and, you know, where does he stand on some of these issues? That was answered somewhat when he was part of a, of a border security press conference, and he was talking about how God designates borders, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea. And, uh, and I'm sure you know people that remember the Gatson Purchase uh, also uh, may, may think that's interesting. And then on the, on the left side, um, there are some new people like Teresa Hatafli, and she's a uh, Hopi who has been appointed to take the place of Jamashita Peshlakai. And so she vowed to sort of take up uh, Senator Peshlakai's indigenous focus for her agenda. And so she's already kind of uh, put out a lot of bills that 
to that regard. She's been very busy the last few days. I'd add a couple other names to the list. Uh, Representative Michelle Udall, she's chair of the House Education Committee. She's been probably the key roadblock to big expansion of the state's voucher system. But this year, Udall is running for the Republican nomination for uh, state school superintendent. And uh, she does have a competitive primary. We will see where she falls on how much to expand the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. Um, She will be crucial on that perennial issue. In the Senate, look to uh, Senator J.D. Mesnard. He's their tax whiz. He's their hardliner on tax reductions. And he has pulled together enough members to hold up any kind of quick approval of raising the spending limit for uh, schools, something we'll probably talk about a little bit later. And then I would just add that given that we have such close margins in both the House and Senate, with Republicans having just a one-seat majority in each chamber, that on any given day, any one Republican could be a key player because they can withhold their vote on anything that is GOP priority and force changes. Okay, so that is the cast of characters to watch. Let's talk about some of the plot lines. This is Governor Ducey's final year in office. It's been his goal, really, before he even took office, to lower the state's taxes. We will resist the cries from the spending lobby, and once again, we will allow the people to keep their hard-earned money. We will cut taxes. What sort of tax cuts are he and the legislature looking at this year? What are his priorities as we understand them? As we know, the governor doesn't usually specify exactly what he wants in the state of the state or even when um, he releases his budget. But it's well known that Governor Ducey's target is the income tax. As he has said from the beginning, he wants to get it as close to zero as possible This year, I would look for something very similar to the approach to a flat rate uh, tax that lawmakers passed in June. It's now been put on hold because of the citizen referendum. And there's a lot of talk about bringing back many components of that, but with a bigger cut because we have a bigger surplus. Um, So I would look for massive historic cuts in the state income tax and probably some tinkering around the edges with other, uh, you know, with tax exemptions for special groups. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I, I was speaking with Representative Toma about the possibility of a tax cut, and he specifically mentioned that the previous tax cut was done when the state wasn't doing as well economically, or I mean, it was still doing well, but it, it hadn't uh, built up as much uh, revenues as it now has. So he thinks that, that we ought to go back and look at that, which I, I think is for a possibly a bigger tax cut. Sort of in the same monetary vein, the spending limit for schools is in danger this year. Mary Jo, you've written quite a bit about this. If the legislature doesn't increase the state's spending limit for education by March 1st, schools are in danger of losing quite a bit of funding, right? Yes. Every year, they have to calculate how much do all the school budgets put together add up to, and does that fit under the spending cap? This year, for like the third time ever, They've determined that, oh, it's not going to. If lawmakers do not raise that cap or waive it or do something to not make schools subject to it, schools will have to cut their budgets by 16%. That's a big chunk of change. 
you know, in the last quarter of the school year, in a year that's already been dealing with COVID. I had one school superintendent in rural eastern Arizona say that if they have to cut 16% from their budget, they'll probably just end the school year, like in April. Yeah, and Republicans who um, are sometimes uh, um, on the opposite side of the of the issue for public schools, some of them see this as leverage potentially to get what they want, and so there's a lot of basically desperation and, and interest by uh, the school advocates and some Republicans and, and Democrats and other Republicans see you know an opportunity here, um, and so they're looking at you know could we maybe do do a trade? Um, we'll do this if you go for the uh, you know we get a few extra votes for expanded. Uh, empowerment scholarship accounts, or maybe find a way to really keep Prop 208 dead. And there hasn't been any specific proposal there. It's up to a judge, but um, I think there's maybe a pressure that's being put on school advocates to maybe withdraw Prop 208 somehow. I also expect that there are going to be proposals, perhaps with a push from the business community or elements of the business community, to take a look at why this expenditure limit even exists and look at making changes to it so that it's not just simply a question of, do we raise the limit? People are questioning, why do we have this limit? Because individual school districts already have their own spending limit. Arizona has an aggregate spending limit for schools because voters approved it and put it in the constitution in 1980. This is a four decade old issue that over the decades hasn't been very dramatic the schools have bumped up against that limit twice, maybe three times. The record's a little unclear, and it's always been lifted so that they can proceed without cutting budgets. It's different this year. This issue this year would only, if by lifting it, it would only allow school districts to spend the money that the legislature said that they could spend back in June. So you do have to question what's changed between June and now. And mostly it's been the um, introduction of tying this issue to the extinction of Proposition 208, which is another highly contested tax for education that is on life support, but it's not dead yet. Right. It's in trial court right now uh, after being sent there from the Supreme Court, which said that it is probably unconstitutional and the trial court has to figure out whether it is definitely going to exceed the expenditure limit, which it apparently is. It sounds like this would put a strain on districts that are already sort of in crisis mode because of staffing issues that a lot of parents have seen and experienced in the era of COVID. We've got a lot of teachers out. We've got other staff out because of COVID and other illnesses or their their kids are sick. Is there a sense that the school spending, as the governor has sort of laid out, is a major priority for lawmakers who still narrowly control both chambers. And what what do you see it taking for them to pass some sort of increase in spending? What's, what's the carrot? What's the incentive on that? Personally, thus far, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about, you know, more money for teacher salaries or retention. Certainly, it didn't get any notice in the governor's state of the state address. Um, the carrot might be some kind of trade-off that, hey, stop blocking our tax cuts, and we'll find some way to increase money for schools. Um, as you know, the tax cut, the flat rate that was approved last year is now on hold and on the November ballot for voters to decide. Lawmakers could try to repeal that, um, or maybe they could cut a deal with public school interests to um, get them to maybe withdraw that in exchange for 
a lot more money. Yeah, I haven't seen any bills from Republicans that have any kind of special appropriations for schools at this point. It's early in the budget process, but the only school bills that that are really out there right now are more in the uh, culture war uh, zone, looking at issues like critical race theory um, and pushing back on people that want to prohibit parents, for example, from protesting at schools. Sort of stepping back, it seems at least in Ducey's entire term, we've had conversations about public funding of public schools. We've had conversations about um, the Empowerment Scholarship Account program, which allows parents to take money that otherwise would have gone into their public school districts and use it for private school tuition, therapies, um, other things. We've seen that program sort of expanded, and we've seen Republicans make the case for its expansion. Now it seems like really what folks are are focused on is school choice and expanding that program yet again, trying to make a, a play to transparency with what's being taught in the schools by, you know, trying to post all of this curriculum that kids are learning from online and conversation about trying to catch up kids who are at risk of really severely falling behind because of learning loss in the era of COVID. How do you, I guess, reconcile what is on the minds of parents versus what politicians seem to be talking about? Are they sort of the same thing or are they, you know, is there a gap in between, you know, reality and and politics? I think there's um, a gap between attentiveness to the needs of the public schools, the district schools versus other components of school choice, charter schools, vouchers, etc., the governor's speech set a tone. I mean, there was no mention of what what to do for the district schools specifically. I mean, yes, he's proposing summer camp to make up for learning loss. But there is, uh, it's maybe a little overstated, but there's a bit of a sense of war against district schools. Um, certainly teachers, uh, unions um, are demonized. And I mean, Arizona has the Arizona Education Association, but they're not a union like we see in Chicago. Um, so I would say the tone is more one of hostility towards a lot of public school. Right. I mean, the governor is basically pledged to give money to to families who take their kids out of schools where masks are mandated and, and they could use that money for private schools. And so you can only imagine what school districts think of, of those kinds of plans. Okay. So Mary Jo, you referenced the summer camp notion that the governor mentioned during his state of the state speech. Do we have a sense of how that program would be implemented and particularly in light of all the staffing shortages that we see for teachers and support staff uh, across the state? Do we have a sense of how that will factor into the ability to even follow through on this? Uh, not as of the time that we're taping this. Um, by the time listeners hear this, the governor will have um, revealed his budget, which hopefully will include some kind of plan for how he would pay for summer camp. Of course, the big issue there, you want more instruction for kids over the summer. You've got to have instructors. Um, where are they going to find the teachers and what kind of pay are they going to offer them? Um, we just don't have any details at this point. But there's a lot of money there, potentially. They want to maybe save it for a big tax cut, but there's over $2 billion um, in surplus funds that the JLBC says could be spent. So I guess we, we may need to subtract a billion for this water plan and the desalination plan that, that the governor talked about. Um, 
but it seems like there's a lot of money there if, if there was will to use it for things like that. Summer school, I don't know, does it cost a billion dollars? Um, I would say probably not for one summer. I suspect some of the federal COVID relief money that um, is still available for the governor to disperse could be directed towards this. He's already used some of it to um, provide vouchers for families who want to get their children out of schools that require a mask. Perhaps applying it to a summer camp would affect a broader population. One other area on education that is a, a perennial area of interest is school choice. It's something that the governor has pushed a lot throughout his tenure in office. What does further expansion circa 2022 look like as we understand it, and how would that affect schools and students? Well, uh, Senator Boyer will be bringing back a bill very similar to what he had last year, which would expand these vouchers to any child who meets the federal Title I eligibility requirements, which is basically low income. He cast this as a rather minimal expansion. Not many people, you know, are going to take advantage of that based on past performance, as opposed to last year when the plan was any kid that's in a school that has Title I funding would be eligible. This narrows the pool, but uh, we'll see what kind of amendments get put onto it and what kind of uh, games get played with it. This does seem like, given that it's Ducey's last year, given all the money that's available and the um, the 10 years of some lawmakers uh, ending, plus Michelle Udall looking to move on to a higher state office, that the planets might align for a bigger push on expanding the voucher program. Just to add that Boyer told me that he doesn't think much of the argument that this is going to have much of an impact on public schools and reminded us that the uh, Joint Legislative Budget Committee predicts that the expanded program would still only basically be used by about 4% of students. And so he, he just argues that's not going to be uh, that big of an effect, but it will help the students who take advantage of it. hot button issue that uh, has taken center stage is the issue of election integrity and access to the ballot box. There's sort of been a tug of war between Republicans and Democrats on what this might look like. Republicans are talking about making sure that elections are secure. Uh, Democrats are accusing Republicans of pushing bills that would do the opposite. Uh, in terms of access to the ballot box, it would suppress votes. What bills are being floated out there right now? There seems to be a number already filed. What has the likelihood of actually moving forward? Well, there's a couple bills that have a lot of co-sponsors, and so that that certainly indicates uh, some level of popularity. Two bills that that were sponsored by Representative Mark Fincham have like eight to 10 co-sponsors, all Republicans. And um, one of those, which would make electronic digital images of ballots publicly available and searchable by the public. And uh, that actually has some support, or at least uh, not support, but Adrian Fontes, the former Democratic uh, Maricopa County recorder, said that he could support this. Um, that it, it, you know, these these things are already public record. The public would not know how people voted, but it would basically put these public records out there in a way that people could do 
their own audits, potentially. You could compare the, the names of people uh, to see, uh, are they felons? Are they alive? Are they uh, actually living in that district? So supposedly that would, uh, that would increase public confidence. And then there's another one um, that, uh, that, that Fincham has. This requires a hand count. And so I was kind of surprised to see uh, this many co-sponsors on this. Some people say this would be really difficult because the state voters uh, cast 3.4 million ballots in 2020. But what this bill would do would require that all primary and general election ballots are counted by hand. Interestingly enough, it says that you could use machines for backup. And, and it doesn't say what would happen if, if there's a, uh, you know, a discrepancy between those two. Would you have to do another hand count, for example, if, if uh, the machines were, were wildly off? But, of course, there were a lot of concerns over the machines that were used in the 2020 election. And so, so this would alleviate some of those concerns. Another bill that may do well is by um, uh, Senator Michelle Ugenti-Rita, and she proposed this last year. It had some support. And what this would do is it raises the threshold for the automatic recount under Arizona law. And so for decades, we've had this law that basically says that if a race, and just talking about uh, like legislative races or statewide races, if, if the difference in votes is less than 200 votes or um, 0.1% of the votes, and then it says whichever is lesser. So basically it comes down to 200 votes uh, for the most part. Um, then, then there has to be an automatic recount. I think for maybe for legislative, it's 50. Um, but so there's a little bit of difference there. But basically for statewide races, 200 votes or 0.1% triggers an automatic recount. What Michelle Ugenti Rita's uh, bill would do is just raise that to a 0.5% of votes and forget about the 200 votes. So if, if the difference is less than 0.5% of the votes that were cast, there'd be an automatic recount. And if you're wondering, would that have caused a recount in the in the Trump-Biden election, which was um, pretty close and just over 10,000 votes separating them, it would. And, and it would also uh, have caused recounts in, in like eight or 10 other statewide and, and federal races. Paul Boyer, the, uh, the, the critic um, who we're saying might push back on some of these, told me specifically that he would definitely not be for anything that banned mail-in voting. And this is still um, a big topic. There hasn't been any bills. There haven't been any bills that have been submitted yet directly related to banning all mail-in voting. But it is still possible, uh, according to Kelly Townsend, and, and she would still consider something like that if it came across her desk. There is already one bill by Senator Wendy Rogers that would uh, ban mail-in voting for all city and school elections. So we'll see if that advances anywhere. Um, and it may not. But if it does, uh, would Paul Boyer... Uh, Nix that. that. That'll be something to watch. Okay. So we have another issue that is very important to Arizona that doesn't get nearly the attention of uh, election administration and management, and that's water. 2022 is the first year that Arizona is going to see its share of water cuts. The ongoing drought has triggered officials to declare a water shortage. During his State of the State speech, the governor touted water desalination as part of a, an approach to trying to solve this matter. Now, with resources available in our budget, a relationship with Mexico that we've built and strengthened over the last seven years, and the need clear, what better place to invest more? Instead of just talking about desalination, the technology that made Israel the world's water superpower? How about we pave the way to make it actually happen? 
Does the legislature have any real plan to address this this drought? There are a few interesting ideas, including this desalination proposal, which, if it were put forward in a, in a robust way, uh, could really change the game for the future of Arizona. But this is not a, a fully developed plan yet. There's still concern about how much power it would use. Desalination plants are very power intensive. And so would there have to be like a nuclear plant or a coal plant built right next to it or something like that? Solar probably wouldn't do it. And also, we would still have to negotiate that with Mexico. It would probably involve a desalination plant right near Puerto Penasco or Rocky Point. Um, and there wouldn't be a pipeline coming up here. Do a trade which would allow us to give less of the trickle of water that we now give Mexico in the Colorado River to Mexico. And, and they would trade some of that for help building the desalination plant, which they would then water their own communities in Sonora with. That sounds like an interesting idea, but the environmental experts tell us that the Colorado River's flow is continuing to decrease, and that may continue um, as the drought and, and climate change uh, come. And so if, if our deal is that we will give Mexico part of the Colorado River, well, what if that dries up um, or you know, dries up a lot? Does that mean we paid for nothing? Uh, you know, things like that are, are still open questions. Representative Regina Cobb, who's in her last term, says she's going to make an all-out push to try to push through legislation that would put some limits on rural water development. There are rules in the metro area for making sure that there is an assured water supply before development proceeds. That doesn't exist in rural Arizona. And she's hearing from her constituents out in western Arizona that at least some of them, they want some of these controls. Her big challenge is how to get this past her colleague, Representative Gail Griffin, who is the chair of the Natural Resources Committee in the House, and Griffin is very much an advocate of voluntary measures, nothing mandatory. Senator Fan also told us that that there's some support for a bill that would basically give more freedom for private companies to take water from the Harkahala Valley, which is west of the valley, and and then transport that water to communities. And so this would be groundwater that they're taking. I guess that that could be part of the solution or part of the problem. Any wild card issues that you guys are hearing could make a make a play here during the session? Well, I don't think the proposal to create the Donald Trump highway is going to go very far. <laughs> That's from well, what about Donald Trump Day? Because <laughs> <laughs> we could have a highway or a day. Yeah, with, with the uh, probably neither. But um, uh, we'll see. That's a measure of the former president's um, imprint. Of course, um, and it's not so much wild card, but there will be a lot of COVID legislation, mostly related around not putting restrictions or mandates on anything. For example, Representative Steve Kaiser from Phoenix has a, a bill that would if someone gets fired from their, by their uh, employer because they have not complied with the vaccine requirement, that they would be entitled to one year's pay, severance pay. We'll see things like that, and that will keep the fire going on the whole COVID debate, which is already raging because we've got lawmakers who are coming down with COVID. We've got you know uh, staff members out there that reportedly are getting sick because of COVID, and the legislature is operating in under a return to normal scenario right now where any kind of COVID protocols are optional. They're available, but um, optional. All right. Well, if people want to follow you guys on Twitter throughout this session, where can they find you? At Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. And you can find me at Ray Stern. Thanks so much, guys. 
That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Before you go, please rate and review our show and share this episode with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. You can also follow this show and other Arizona Republic podcasts, like Valley 101, on Twitter at azcpodcasts. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.